this week, um, I was reading in Jeremiah as part of my normal Bible in a year devotional routine. Anybody else behind and you're like, now the, the race is on to finish by the end of the year? It's like, I, it's like, I got to do two a days, you know, to like get there, but I'm close. And so uh, I was in Jeremiah this week as part of that. And I read Jeremiah chapter 42. And the Lord gave me a message out of it. And he made it clear that he wanted me to preach it this weekend. And the title of my message today out of Jeremiah 42, if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be if you want to turn there and follow along. The title of my message is Dangerous Discernment. And Jeremiah chapter 42 is, is a chapter about dangerous discernment. What is dangerous discernment? Discernment, dangerous discernment is counterfeit discernment. You're, you're trying to seek discernment from God about what he wants you to do in your life. And because you fall into these pitfalls of counterfeit discernment, you end up making the exact opposite choice that God wanted you to make. Because our, the enemy of our souls is very good at what he does. And he masquerades as an angel of light. He quoted scripture to Jesus. So he knows what he's doing. And when I read this passage this week, I've experienced this in my life. I've fallen into some of these pitfalls we're going to talk about today. And tragically, I've seen people lose their faith by giving in to dangerous discernment, by being deceived, being self-deceived. I've seen marriages crumble. I've seen churches fall apart because of dangerous discernment. And because of that experience, sometimes when I read scripture, you ever, like when I listen to podcasts that are about trauma and abuse, they'll be like, trigger warning, if you've been through trauma and abuse, you know, we're going to talk about this. I feel that way when I read the Bible sometimes. <laughs> Only there's no warning. It's just like, oh, it's like I've been through this, you know. <sighs> and I, I read it and I felt very sobered. And I was grieving in my heart because I've known personally known people who've given in to dangerous discernment, and it breaks my heart for them. And I was just very sober, and I was sitting there just going, it was heavy. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me very clearly, and he said, Aaron, warn my people. Warn my people. And so he wants me to warn you today about dangerous discernment. And so I want to walk through Jeremiah 42. And I want to talk about five pitfalls of dangerous discernment. Discernment defined as the ability to perceive, understand, and judge things clearly, especially when things are not obvious or straightforward. It's the ability to grasp and understand what is obscure, what's unclear, or difficult to understand or see. So discernment is the ability to make, have good judgment that helps you make good decisions that are in alignment with God's will for your life or for your family, especially when things are unclear, difficult to understand, okay? So discernment is not, you don't need discernment when it's black and white written in the word of God. You need obedience, <laughs> And so when it comes to sexual immorality, lying, stealing, infidelity, murder, hatred, you don't need discernment on those things. You need humility and obedience. You need repentance if you're not living the way God wants in those things. That's black and white. It's written in the book. Discernment is when things are unclear and you don't know what to do. And man, 
the way I've experienced this, especially over the last few years, is when you're in the hardest seasons of your life, when you're going through things that are extremely difficult, and especially, I want you to hear me, when it's really personally painful to you. That is when you need to be most wary, cautious about dangerous discernment. So that's the position the people of God were in in Jeremiah chapter 42. And I want to set it up before we walk through it. Here's what's going on. Jeremiah and Isaiah too, these two major prophets, they were called in a season, um, well, Isaiah was called before Jeremiah. And the people of God, this is like a few hundred years after um, King David, okay, kind of the golden age, if you will, of the nation of Israel. A few hundred years after that, they fall into civil war, two nations now, and then they just fall into idolatry, and they start living like the culture around them rather than how God says. Now, they never give up their faith. They keep going to church, if you will. They keep going to synagogue. They keep doing what God says as far as the religious practices, but they're living in a whole lot of sin. They're sacrificing their children in the fire to other false gods, like they'd have a baby and they would burn it on an altar and kill it, thinking that that's going to help them have better crops or have more children or whatever, be blessed financially, whatever, false gods, divination, all that. Um, They were doing horrible things like that and a whole lot of other things. Gross sexual immorality was going on in the nation. God rebukes them for a whole lot of things. All the while, they're going to church, they're doing the thing and thinking they're right with God. So God starts warning them Two, over 200 years in advance, starting with prophets like Isaiah, um, this is the case. And if you don't turn and repent and come back to me and turn from your sin, I'm going to send kings from the north, Assyria, and then later, Assyria was a warning. And Assyria came first and conquered Samaria, which was Israel's capital, the northern. And he's like, and if you don't listen to that, then I'm seeing Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. He's going to conquer everything and totally decimate the nation. And so God is a God, you know, love will warn you. God is love. So God encourages. But when he gives us free will and when we're not listening um, and doing what he wants, he'll start to warn. He doesn't just put the hammer down. He'll start to warn. Right? How many of you know 200 years of warning? That's a long, that's a long time of warning. So you get to the lifetime of Jeremiah. And God, God called Isaiah 200 years prior uh, to the downfall of uh, Israel and Judah. And he told him, I'm, I'm calling you, I'm looking for someone, but here's the deal, Isaiah, nobody's gonna listen to you. But I still want you to preach my word because I want them to have the opportunity to repent. And then he calls Jeremiah and it's basically the same deal. So in Jeremiah's lifetime, he preaches the word of God. He's warning them. And he is one of the most hated men in Israel by the kings, by the religious people, by the Pharisees and the the priests and the the prophets. There were hundreds of prophets, but they were false prophets because they're like, we're God's nation. God's not going to let us be conquered. They were very prideful. God's not going to let us be conquered. God is with us. We can fight anybody. But they kept living how they wanted to live. And Jeremiah's like, you're wrong. The Lord spoke to me and he's going to destroy this nation if we don't repent. Now, if you repent, he will relent. And that's a principle, by the way, that carries on into our day and age. God still disciplines his people, but if you repent, he will relent. 
That's a promise from the word of God. That's, that's his, because his heart is not about bringing judgment and punishment for that, just for judgment and punishment's sake. His heart is to your heart. And if your heart will turn to him, he relents. All right. That's all he's looking for because he is love. He's revealed to you the ways of love. And if you walk in the ways of love and he, he is good. So he only wants what's best for you. And so if he, God cannot stand to watch his people destroy their own lives by their selfish choices. But he won't, take, he won't take over and force you to do what he wants. That's why the world's in sin and in chaos. Because God is love, but he's not a control freak. So God's not in control. The Bible says that this world is under the control of the evil one. That's scripture. Why is that? Because people are in sin. The majority of the world and world leaders are not Christians. They're not submitted to the lordship of Jesus. So they're self-deceived and they're under the control and the power of the devil. God gives free will. And he's looking for people who, by their free will, will come into a relationship with him. And then give him permission to start working in their lives. We pray and we seek him. He shows us what he wants us to do. And we bring the kingdom, which is the rule and reign of Jesus, wherever we go. And he wants us to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, in Mount Orb as it is in heaven, in Brown County as it is in heaven, in Ohio as it is in heaven. But that's a hard job when the whole world is under the control of the, of the devil, right? But somebody's got to do it. Amen? And uh, if we don't do it, if we don't show them Jesus, if we don't share Jesus with them, who's going to, right? We are his ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5, because God is making his appeal through people, because Psalm 115 says, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, the earth he's given to mankind. It's like Lord of the Rings, all right? <laughs> Middle earth, that's the realm of man. That's where we are. Man has power and authority. God works through man's power and authority, not because God's lower, because God, that's how he set it up, and that's how he created it. He's like, this is yours. This earth is yours. Your life is yours. Now we jacked it up. So God's like, all right, I'll help. I'll come and save, and I'll work but I want you to give me permission because it's yours. And he created us as free beings. So, again, there's people here that need to hear that. I talk about that kind of stuff all the time. Wasn't planning on it today. So here we are, nation of Israel. This was around um, 500 BC, okay, when this happened. And uh, so Jeremiah is a prophet. He's the most hated man in Israel uh, they put him in prison at one point. They want to kill him several times. All, hundreds of false prophets are like, he's wrong. Nobody believes him until everything he said happens. Nebuchadnezzar come, comes. He destroys Jerusalem. He takes all the people captive. He puts a vassal or an ambassador, a Jewish man. Uh, he takes the king captive. Yeah, I won't get into all that. <laughs> Horrible story, really. Uh, it was a rebellious king. He wasn't listening to the Lord Zedekiah. He puts all his children in front of him. God told him, if you listen to me and you surrender, it'll go well with you. I'll protect you, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't do that. He tries to run. Um, Nebuchadnezzar catches him, um, puts all his kids in front of him, kills all of his kids in front of him, and then gouges out his eyes. Last thing he sees, and then takes him to Babylon. Um, a lot of people sit in judgment on the Bible because that kind of stuff's in there. God's just telling you what happened in history. God's not like, I liked that. He's not condoning it. 
He's just recording this happened. But it's a lesson, isn't it? Because he said, if you listen to me and you surrender, that won't happen. Didn't listen. Here's a little lesson from that. Um, when we don't listen to God, it can have catastrophic consequences on our lives. And on our families. Catastrophic. The American church needs the fear of the Lord. Big time. And we need to realize if we don't listen to the Lord, his ways, his word, catastrophic things can happen. And so Jeremiah 42 happens after all that. Nebuchadnezzar puts this Jewish man in charge named Gedaliah. And he's Jewish, and he's trying to do what God wants. He's trying to serve the people well. He's serving Nebuchadnezzar, which is what God told Jeremiah. For, for probably at least two decades, Jeremiah is prophesying, God wants you to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar when he comes. If you try to fight back or run away to Egypt, you will be killed or you'll die by famine and disease because God wants you to surrender. It, this is his discipline coming against the nation. This wouldn't have happened if you had repented, but it's too late now. It's going to happen. You need to surrender. He's been preaching that for like two decades. Constant message. And the nationalistic, prideful Jewish people in his generation are like, no, we're God's people. That's not going to happen. You're a false prophet. Put him in prison. He is discouraging the army. He's discouraging the king. On and on and on. So it all happens. And after that point, Gedaliah is in charge. A man named Ishmael rises up who's an army officer. He gets the army with him. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. He assassinates Gedaliah, takes out a bunch of other leaders. Then he takes over and he starts just killing a bunch of people to like rule with an iron fist type of thing. But he's in rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. Well, then this guy named, I'm gonna read his name again, or uh, his name's Johanan. He's an army officer. He's like, Ishmael's evil. This is not Abraham's Ishmael. This is hundreds of years later, just a different Ishmael. Ishmael's evil, they're rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. We're all going to get killed for that. So he raises up an army. He fights against Ishmael. He ends up winning, killing him, putting the rebellion down. But now they don't know what to do. So God's been saying all along, stay in Jerusalem, surrender to Babylon. But things are different now because this rebellion occurred. So now there's questioning. They're second guessing. Are we still supposed to do that? Now we're just afraid. They're afraid that Nebuchadnezzar's gonna, when he eventually finds out about the rebellion, you have to understand they didn't have email and text. He wasn't finding out day of. It's gonna take a few weeks at least for him to find out about all this, right? But when he finds out, oh, he's gonna be coming with his army. And they're afraid he's just gonna kill all of us. So they're really wanting to go to Egypt for safety. Egypt in their day and age was like America in our day and age. A lot of other countries view America as the promised land, the land of freedom, and it is, right? Um, and, and they want to come here, and they, they fantasize about it and all this stuff. You know, the American dream and all that. That's how Egypt was in their day. They were prosperous. They had good land. They had the Nile River. They had powerful kings. They had a good economy. They were rich, so on and so on. And God told his people over and over again, don't depend on Egypt. And it was close by to Israel. You know, a, a week or two journey, you could, you could get to Egypt. And so, um, on foot and all that. So, they're really wanting to flee to Egypt. That seems like the wisest thing, the best decision. But because of the hardship in their life, because of their suffering, it's humbled them. And now they're going to seek discernment from the man of God, which is a good decision. It's a good thing. And that's where I want to pick up Jeremiah 42. 
starting in verse 1, it says, Then all the army officers, including Johanan and son of Korea and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah. So these are the leaders of the one, the army that's put down the rebellion. And all the people from the least to the greatest. This is the remnant that's left after Nebuchadnezzar has totally raised, totally leveled Jerusalem. They come to Jeremiah the prophet and say to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once were many, now only a few are left. Pitfall number one of dangerous discernment. We use our circumstances as our barometer rather than the word of God. As you now see, they said, though we once were many, now only a few are left. Here's the deal. They wouldn't be in this situation if when things were quote unquote prosperous and successful, if they had had better discernment. Because when things were prosperous and successful, do you know why they weren't repenting for 200 years? Because they were prosperous and successful. They were like the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. They were saying to themselves, what do you mean, Jeremiah, that God's not for us and God's against us and we need to repent? Look at our economy. God's favor is on us. We have all these blessings. Jesus said the church of Laodicea, Christian people in Laodicea in the first century, Revelation chapter 3, were saying, We're rich and wealthy and we don't need a thing. I mean, look at all God's blessings. Let's count God's blessings in our lives. And Jesus is like, y'all don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And you need to repent. He says, those I, I love, I rebuke, and I discipline. That's new covenant scripture. That's Jesus speaking to his people when we get out of line. And he says, I counsel you to buy gold for me refined in the fire. What's that? True faith. True faith authentic faith. How many of you know the, the letters to the seven churches, the vast majority of Bible prophecy has double meaning, layers of meaning. There is a, a meaning for them in their day and age, and there is a eternal meaning. So there's a meaning that speaks through the ages. And there's a meaning that speaks to end times, very often in all the prophets. So the seven churches were seven real churches at that time, but it was also seven church ages. And we are in the Laodicean age. We're in the age of lukewarm faith because of affluence. It's the parable of the sower, the third type of soil, the rocky soil. There's no, there's, it's shallow, it's rocky, and, and the plant withers and dies. Why is that? Because of, Jesus said, the deceitfulness of wealth and the distractions of other things are the worries of this life. Deceitfulness of wealth, what is that? When you live in a culture or an age of affluence, you have a whole lot of options of good things to spend your life on rather than Jesus. And you choose your hobbies and your entertainments and, and all these things, and you view it as God's blessing because look how blessed we are. We have microwaves. Life's easier. Wow, look at technology. God's so good. We can do surgeries and heal people now. Yay. Yay us. I'm not against those things. But are we doing the will of God? How, are we denying ourselves to take up our crosses and follow Jesus? Do we care that people are going to hell? Are we, are we living out our calling? Do you know that you have a calling? Do you know what it is? Are you doing the good works God's prepared in advance for you to do? And do you know that you're doing them? And if the answer to those questions for you is no, then I would say you're probably in danger of dangerous discernment in an age of affluence, and a very lukewarm Christian culture in America. And you're in danger of idolatry. 
of not being a Christian, but being an idolater. Who's a Christian? A Christian is someone who's denied themselves, taking up their cross, following Jesus, and living their whole life for his glory, and, and, and making every relationship about how can I love and bless this person and be an example of Jesus to them? How can I do the good works he's prepared in advance for me to do? How can every conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt, the truth of God? That's a Christian. What is an idolater? It's not an unbeliever. Those are unbelievers. An idolater is someone who says they believe in God. They might go to church, but that's where their relationship with God ends. I go to church once a week, but Monday through Saturday, I live for myself and my own kingdom. And when I get in trouble or when I really want something, I pray and ask God for it. Other than that, though, it's all about me. It's not about forget about me. I want to live for you, Jesus. That's a Christian. An idolater is bless me, Jesus, bless me, Jesus, bless me, Jesus. And I want to have good things in my life and live my life. And you never think about how to bring the kingdom of God in your life. So we need to be aware of this first danger of dangerous discernment. You know, God said in Deuteronomy 8, when you get in the promised land, don't forget to praise me for the land of milk and honey. Because he's basically like, it's going to be really good and prosperous. And if you forget me, though, he says, you, you will forget that it is God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8. So there's no such thing as a self-made man or woman because if you make a fortune or make a successful life, you had the gifts and abilities. God gave you the, God gave you the IQ. God gave you the opportunities. God gave you the strength and the power. And there are people with mental problems or, or trauma and abuse that to where it messes them up so much that they literally can't function the way you do. So it's pride to think, well, I did this. I don't need God. God made you. God gave you the ability. And so that's dangerous discernment to use, oh, things are good right now, and think you're in alignment with God. And if we would use the word of God more as our discernment in times that are good, we could avoid the discipline of God. Because if, we're, if we are truly being idolaters in good times, thinking that we're in alignment with God, God will bring discipline into our lives. God will allow suffering and affliction to humble us. We've talked about it last two weeks, to break us, to shatter us, and show us we are not in alignment with him. And that's his grace. And anybody who's authentically been through that is happy for it, is glad that he gave them that grace. Because Romans chapter one, one of the most dangerous forms of God's judgment, or I should say scary forms of God's judgment, is not that he brings the hammer down and harms you. It's he pulls back and just lets you do what you want to do. That's Romans chapter one. And you do that your whole life and then you go to hell. And there's a whole lot of people, especially in America and Western European nations, who will do that professing the name of Jesus. (laughs) But they're an idolater, they're not a Christian. And so now they're humbled by their hard circumstances. And now they're making a right decision. And they're coming to Jeremiah. It's interesting that they never came to Jeremiah when times were good because of that pitfall. Because true prophets are considered, or accused rather, of being tone deaf in times of physical prosperity but spiritual depravity by people who judge by the outward appearance and their own comfort 
rather than by the heart and the word of God. Hosea 9 verse 7 says, The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool and the inspired person a maniac. America right now in its current state is dangerously close to where the nation of Israel was right before they were totally destroyed by Babylon. America is at a place where the inspired person, a true prophet, is considered a fool and a maniac by Christian people. It's getting to the place where if you just gently go to a brother and sister and go, well, the Bible says this, and I know you're saying that these things are okay for people to do as a Christian, but they're not. The the Bible says this. And if you say it that gently, people get offended, they accuse you, and you're considered a maniac, and then they call, they call you a false prophet. And that's what was happening to Jeremiah. Um, but do you know when uh, true prophets who look like false prophets all of a sudden look like true prophets again? When everything they warned about starts happening. <laughs> and, so, and so now it's all happening. Now they're like, okay, Jeremiah, uh, maybe, maybe you were right on. Uh, do, you know, do you know another reason why they're not going to the false prophets anymore? The guys who were all encouragement, no bad stuff's ever going to happen, all the good stuff. Do you know why they're not going to, there were hundreds of them and only one of Jeremiah in this generation. Do you know why they're not going to him in chapter 42 though? They're all dead because Nebuchadnezzar killed them all. <laughs> Yet Jeremiah is still alive because God will take care of his true prophets. So they come to him. Verse 3, it says, they say this to him. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. We have this hard situation. Life's difficult. Things are confusing. There was a rebellion, but we put that down. But now we're afraid Nebuchadnezzar's going to kill us. We're wanting to run to Egypt. Maybe we should stay. We don't know what to do. Pray to God. Show us what we should do. That's a really good thing. There's three main tests for discernment in your life. Whether it's a spirit you're engaging you know, spiritual discernment, discerning of spirits, or just decisions you need to make. You need to do the word test, the word of God, written Bible, is is what you're feeling led to do or hearing in your spirit or the decision. Is it, does the word of God speak against it? Or is the God's word say you should be doing things like this? So you need the word test, the wise counsel test. If you're still not sure, if the Bible doesn't speak explicitly to it, okay, Wise counsel, go to other respected Christian leaders and ask them what they think about this decision or about what you're sensing in your spirit, okay? That's what they're doing here, so this is a good thing. And then there's the fruit test. What is the fruit? Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know decisions by their fruits. You'll know people by their fruits. You'll know churches by their fruits. So what is the fruit? So they're, going, they're doing a good thing. They're getting wise counsel. They're going to Jeremiah. And this is what Jeremiah says, I've heard you. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you've requested for I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Here's how you can tell a true prophet. True prophets are transparent. True prophets hold nothing back. They don't tell you only part of the message. They don't tell you only the parts you want to hear and only the encouraging things but fail to give you the warnings. 
True prophets don't tell you to your face, oh, you're good, everything's fine, but then behind your back, go to other people, and because they were too cowardly to say it to your face, they tell other people, oh, everything is not fine, and and that's not going to go well for them, and that's not of God. They don't do that. That's gossip, and that's slander, and that's wrong. True prophets are ruined men, and you see this especially most explicitly in the life of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. As God's calling him, he shows him the depths of his own sinfulness and lets him know, you're going to be my prophet, but you're accountable to me. So Isaiah, the rest of his life, he has this deep fear of God. If I lie to people or if I only highlight the positive and if I never warn people about the bad, God is going to judge me. Isaiah, I believe, had a similar experience. We know he had the similar fear of God in him. Because you see times where Jeremiah is lamenting like, Lord, this is hard. Lord, I don't want to do this. Lord, are you against me? Lord, why are nobody's listening to me? And God's like, it is what it is. This is the generation you were born in. Are you going to be faithful to my word? Preach my word. If you read Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel two different times. You're a watchman for the nation of Israel. And when you see people living in sin, you need to warn them that that's not of me and that they need to turn or they'll be judged. And here's what God says to Ezekiel. If you don't warn them, I'm going to hold you accountable for their sin. Why? Because they were ignorant and naive and you didn't warn them. And you know, you've had, a, you've had greater experiences with God. You know, we all, especially in a charismatic church, we all pray for greater experiences with God. I want dreams and vision. I want spiritual gifts. Oh, guess what? You're asking for more responsibility and to whom much is given, much will be required. And you will be held accountable. There's a lot of modern preachers and pastors in churches who read Ezekiel and go, well, that's old covenant. God doesn't really do that anymore. God's not gonna hold me accountable for people in my church's sin just because I didn't warn them or I didn't tell them that's sin. Lord, help us. Here's a new covenant example. The apostle Paul, right before he dies, what does he say to the elders at Ephesus when they're all weeping together on the shores? He's like, I didn't take anybody's stuff and I am innocent of the blood of all people because I've not failed to preach you the full word of God. Why is he saying he's innocent of the blood? He knows Ezekiel (laughs) inside and out. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. (laughs) He knows part of his job as a true prophet is to warn everybody. And he's doing it. And he's like, y'all know I didn't fail to hold back. I, 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 I did not hold back. I, I, I warned y'all. I told you the full thing. I told you the good news, but I warned you about what happens if you don't repent and turn to Christ. And so true prophets have, they're not conceited and proud like I'm close to God and you're not and I'm self-righteous. No, they live in the fear of God. They read the scriptures with fear and trembling. Because they know how fickle their own heart is. And they know all they, they're one decision away from being in the same place. And so they read the word with fear and trembling. We never graduate from the fear of God. And when you don't know him, it feels like terror. When you get to know him, it feels like honor, reverence, and respect. But we never graduate from it. And there's a whole lot of false prophets in America and Western European nations who are buying into grace-only, encouragement-only messages, and it's really, really bad, and it's leading millions of people astray. 
And it's causing a lot of people to think they're saved and they're really not saved because they've never repented. And they say a prayer, but they never turn from their sin. So they say to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's like, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to tell you everything. That's foreshadowing. Maybe there's not going to be some good stuff in here. They said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us. If we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us, whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us for we will obey the Lord our God. This is a confession of faith. The Lord, our God, he's our God. We are believers. These are believers in this story. And they're asking for discernment. We want true discernment is God's will. It's not natural wisdom. It's God's will and it's God's perspective. That's true discernment. And they're asking for it. And they're saying, they're making a vow. We will be faithful to what God says. Seven, verse seven, 10 days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Second pitfall of dangerous discernment. And I was convicted when I read this verse this week. We don't wait long enough on God to reply. We don't go through a discernment process. We live in a microwave generation and we say a prayer, Lord, show me what to do. And if he doesn't answer in an hour, then we just choose and do what we want to do. Well, he didn't answer. I got to make a decision. Here we go. I was convicted. Jeremiah sought the Lord for these people for 10 days. He waited on God for 10 days, seeking God every day for 10 days. God, show me what to do. God, show me what to do. God, show me what to do. God, speak to me. God, clarify your voice. Is this you? Speak to me, Lord. Clarify it. And we live in a generation that does not wait on God. We don't seek God long enough. This is the reason the kingdom was torn out of Saul's hand, ultimately. Because he did fail to obey God fully and to destroy the Amalekites, but it says he was supposed to wait on Samuel to offer a sacrifice. Yeah, that's right, Samuel to offer a sacrifice. And as Samuel was coming, he was a little late. So Saul takes it upon himself very proudly to do the sacrifice. And it says as he's doing it, Samuel shows up. If he had just waited a few more hours, then perhaps God would have had grace for his disobedience. But because of his pride, taking things into his own hand. Not waiting on God, not waiting on the man of God to do his part. God's like, that's it. I'm taking the kingdom out of your hands. I'm giving it to someone who is better than you. And David wasn't better because he was more, more righteously awesome. God chose David. He said, this man will do everything I want. Did David still have sin in his life? Yeah. Did he still have struggles? Yeah. Did he still give into temptation? Yep but he'll do everything that God wants. So we need to wait on the Lord and we need to seek him, especially, and I would say this church, the bigger a decision is and the higher risk it is, you really need to seek the Lord more, wait on him, pray fast, read scripture, get wise counsel, do all the things. So continuing on, Verse 8 says, so he called together Johanan, so he's got an answer, and all the army officers who were with him, all the people from the least to the greatest, he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition says, if you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. 
I will plant you, not uproot you, for I have relented concerning the disaster I've inflicted on you. Don't be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I'm with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and will restore you to your land. God's like, I know there was this rebellion, but you guys are the ones who put it down. And here's the deal. It's the same message he's been saying for a few decades. Stay in the land. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what I want. Same message. So third pitfall of dangerous discernment. Second guessing God's original instructions to you. Especially when bad things happen. I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this. Maybe you all have never second guessed something God told you. I had a young lady came up for prayer last night trying to figure out where to go to college and what to do with their life. And I was feeling, had this spiritual moment. I was really feeling this, but now I'm not so sure. She goes, I don't know. Do you ever second guess the things God says to you? And she described what it was like the last few weeks for her. And I go, you are describing every day of my life. (laughs) I overthink things and second guess things way too much. It's one of my biggest issues in life. It's one of the biggest things the Lord is, needs to finish in me. (laughs) God's original instructions for 20 years was stay in the land, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. But now things are different. Now all this bad stuff happened. Now what? Stay in the land, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Philippians 2 says, it is God who moves in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. To will means to desire. A part of initial calling is the desire to want to do it. Okay. So God will give you, we all fear like, oh, I don't, I'm, I'm fear, I fear surrendering fully to the Lord because what if he wants to send me to China to be a missionary? You don't need to fear that. You know why? If he does, he'll give you the desire to want to do it. Then you won't be afraid because <laughs> you'll want to. Because you know why? He'll absolutely shatter your heart for the people of China who don't know Jesus. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the belief there's something more important than my fear. And so he'll shatter your heart for them, and then you'll be like, I don't care how afraid I am. I don't care if I die. I'm going to China. You'll be begging God to go to China if that's his will for your life. He'll give you the desire. But then what happens, that's, desire is always a part of initial calling. But then what happens is you, you get called, he provides, you go, you get in it, and six months in it, a year into it, all of a sudden, it's hard. It's not what you thought it would be. It doesn't feel like what you thought it would feel like. It's not as successful as you thought it would be soon enough. When you were called, there were no mountains. God's just providing. It's an open way. Let's go. Six months into your calling, you're there. There's, you're surrounded by mountains. Six months in, you're surrounded by enemies. You're going, God, where are you? Now you're questioning everything. Now, was I ever meant to do this? Was I even supposed to be a missionary? Was I even supposed to be a school teacher? Was I even supposed to be a nurse or a doctor like I thought God called me to? I'm not invincible to this. Was I even supposed to be a pastor? Was I even supposed to marry this person? Was I even supposed to take this job? Because ever since I took it, everything's gone wrong. Oh, remember the first pitfall. Using circumstances as our barometer and litmus test rather than God's word and God's voice. 
So Jeremiah continues. There's a second part to his message, verse 13. However, if you say, we will not stay in this land, and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread. God's like, you're fantasizing about what you want to do. You think Egypt is going to be the grass is greener around the Nile. You think you're going to have all the food you could want. You think it's just going to be this, this awesome dream life. So you're wanting to go to Egypt. And this is what he says. Then hear the word of the Lord, verse 15. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there. And the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You will be a curse and an object of horror, a curse and an object of reproach. You will never see this place again. Remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Now, you can either read that as God sounds like he's being pretty harsh. I read that as God's being very clear. And when times are confusing and you need discernment, you need clarity. So they asked for discernment from Jeremiah. He waits on God 10 days. He gets a word. He comes back. He's like, here's the word. You can't, there's, there's no mistakes here. There's no lack of clarity. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave. Number one. And number two, don't go to Egypt. You're fantasizing about it. That's not what's going to happen. You will die there if you go. Now, spoiler alert. If you read the next few chapters, they don't listen to Jeremiah, even though they asked him for advice. They go to Egypt. They take Jeremiah as a prisoner with them. God has Jeremiah do a prophetic act, bury some bricks in Egypt in front of like Pharaoh's palace situation. And then he prophesies, where I've buried these bricks, Nebuchadnezzar's going to come here. He's going to set up his tent, set his throne here. He's going to totally conquer this place. And he's going to kill the remnant of Israel. Which he already told him. He already warned him about. It's going to happen. Well, it takes a while. But guess what happens? Nebuchadnezzar comes. He sets up his tent right over where Jeremiah buried the bricks. Which was a sign. There's no way that, oh, there was a major coincidence. No. He didn't know Jeremiah buried the bricks there. And God's like, this is a sign, this is me. And all of these people that are saying they're believers and will do what God wants and they're seeking God, they all get killed and they die. Why? Because they didn't listen to God. Why didn't they listen to God? Let's keep reading. Fourth pitfall of dangerous discernment. Be sure of this. I warn you today, Jeremiah says, that you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, pray to the Lord our God for us. Tell us everything he says and we'll do it. I have told you today, but still you've not obeyed the Lord your God and all he sent me to tell you. So now be sure of this. You will die by the sword, famine and plague in the place where you want to go settle. God said, if you're determined to go to Egypt, 
this is what's going to happen. And Jeremiah says, it's, he's a true prophet. So he's like, I know you're not going to listen to me and you're going to do what you want to do. Fourth pitfall of dangerous discernment. And this is the, the root of all the others. Valuing your own desires and perspective over God's word and God's perspective. This is the main thing I felt like the Lord wanted me to warn you about as his people today. You, when you are seeking discernment in confusing times, especially in hard times when your heart is full of pain and you're struggling, you need to be very, very careful about what you want to do. Because Jeremiah 17, 9, same guy that wrote this, wrote Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Your own heart will deceive you to do things that are not of God, all the while getting you to think that it is of God. Because, well, I, I, God wants me to be happy, right? I'm in this hard situation, and I don't have joy and peace. And joy, we all know joy and peace is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so God must not be here, and I, this must not be in the situation that, that, that I'm supposed to be in. And so I need out. God wants me out because I can't have joy and peace in this situation. Is that what the word of God says? The word of God says it, we, it is possible for us to have joy and peace in any situation despite circumstance in Christ. And people will use what they want as discernment and say it's God. And this is what God wants. I've sat with people for pastoral counseling who ended up cheating on their spouse. They get caught. They repent. They're trying to work things out. And the root lie was, this is what God wants. One of the root lies I've heard often is, you know, I just married the wrong person. That's what it was. We were young and dumb. I didn't know they weren't a person of God. And I just, you know what? I, I married the wrong person. Do you know why that, the devil wants you to believe that? Nothing else ma will matter. You will have no hope for that marriage being restored. You, you will not want to do things to work on it, like go to counseling or seek help. Why? Because I just married the wrong person. It's not, nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to help. I just married the wrong person. So divorce is the only option. That is such a lie from the pit of hell. What does God's word say? God's word. Marriage is a choice. I married the wrong person is buying into our culture's horrible ideology of soulmate ideology. Oh, there's one person for me and I married the wrong one. Is that what the Bible says? No, the Bible doesn't say anything like that. It says, if you get married, it's your choice and you just be faithful the rest of your life. <laughs> That's what it says. Love is a choice. So be faithful, do the right thing. Obey the word of God. <sighs> Valuing your own desires and perspective is at the root of idolatry. You just want what you want. And we have to be really, this can cloud our discernment big time when we're seeking the Lord for a couple major reasons, especially in a charismatic church on gray areas that aren't in black and white scripture. We're seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance 
And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, we have the mind of Christ, so he'll speak to you in your mind. Um, he'll speak to you through, through um, Paul says, compelled by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem now, not knowing what will happen to me there. Compulsions, you know, we, we have these feelings, I, these intuitions. It's like, man, I just feel like the Lord, right? So I feel, I feel like the Lord. I'm, I hear these thoughts, and they're not my thoughts. But it's in your head, and it's your feelings, so it feels a lot like you. And so... My point is, when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, it can get confusing because it sounds a lot like you. And so when, you, when you're in a hard situation and you really desire something, you need to beware of what you want to happen in the situation because you can feel like you really want it and then start to think that's God's voice. So you need to beware of that. In fact, the more that you want a certain outcome, the more you need to beware. Is this me or is this God? The Bible says test the spirits. Okay, there's three types of spirits. God's spirit and the angels. Okay, that's one category that can interact with you. There is your own spirit, which can interact with you, your mind. Did you know your thoughts come from your spirit? Jesus said it's not... What goes in a person that makes them unclean, it's what comes out of them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart, seed of all your emotions. Out of your spirit. I would say spirit's deepest part of you, heart's above that. Then you get into soul and mind, okay? But out of that deepest place of you, that's out of which your thoughts come. So your, your heart, your spirit can long for things, and then you can start to have thoughts. And it feels like maybe it's not your thought, but it's really what you want. So you need to really play, pray for clarity. Lord, is this you? Or is this just me wanting this to happen? And in a, in a prophetic church, we really need to be careful about that. And then secondly, we need to be careful because think about it this way. If we Christians can justify blatant sin and say it's God's will, then how much more when we're just foggy on a this or that type of judgment situation can we just do what we want to do? And say it's God. We need to practice. What some would call Ignatius indifference. And I do this all the time. When I'm trying to make decisions in church leadership. For my family. For myself. I lay the decisions out before the Lord. I pray. Lord show me what to do. What do you want me to do? And then. Ignatius was a Christian, uh, second century, uh, who was the generation after the apostles. And he had this teaching where he's like, you need to be indifferent to decisions in your life for this very reason, because your, your own heart can lead you astray. So in other words, you lay before the Lord and you go, Lord, here's these situations, here's this decision, I, and you need to admit, I really want this. I really would like this option over here, if you have that. And then you surrender. You go, but Lord, I'm indifferent because I want your will. So I surrender what I want. Would you please clarify to me? And that will, if there is a demonic presence that's trying to incite your own heart to do something that's not of God, that prayer of surrender will break that agreement and clarity will come. There's someone who practiced it before Ignatius, though. And it was in a garden called Gethsemane, and his name was Jesus. And he knelt down three times. 
And he sweat blood because he was wrestling so hard. And he said, Lord, all things are possible for you. And if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Yet not what I will. That's the way I want to do it in my humanity because the cross looks really painful. And I'm wrestling because I don't deserve this. I've only been obedient. And your own people who say they love you the most are wanting to crucify me. So if there's any other way we can do this, yet not what I will, what you will. Jesus did not pray, if it be thy will, like he was confused. He had already told his disciples three times, they're going to kill me. And I'll rise from the dead three days later. He already knew it was going to happen. But he was admitting to the Lord in that moment of wrestling. He was still wrestling with that decision because it hadn't happened yet. He says he knew his betrayer was coming. He's being tempted. You can get out now. You can run. You can flee. They'll never find you. If you stay in this garden, Judas knows you're here because this was the place you used to come. And he's sweating blood over it. And he says, a prayer of surrender, the Gethsemane prayer, yet not what I will, what you will. We need to understand in America that there are two prerequisites to following Jesus. Jesus did say, follow me. That is true. You know, there's no, there's no prerequisites to following your favorite musician or celebrity on social media. You just click the button. There's no prerequisites. You can follow them. There's prerequisites to following Jesus. There's two. Deny yourself and take up your cross. What is the cross? It's most often preached as an instrument to crucify sin. You need to crucify your own sinfulness. That's, that's denying yourself. That's a good teaching. But I think the best hermeneutic is for Jesus, it wasn't crucifying his own sinfulness. What was it for Jesus? The cross was the hardest obedience of something that he did not want to do, but the Lord was calling him to do. That's the cross. You can't, you can't carry a cross in your pocket. It's too big. It's too heavy. It's too painful. You got to embrace it. And especially for Christians in America, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to go through our own Gethsemane first. And one of the reasons so many Christians are actually in idolatry in America is because they've started to follow Jesus without denying themselves. They want to get married to Jesus, have a covenant with him, but they haven't divorced themselves from themselves. And so deny yourself, take up your cross. My life's not about me anymore. Jesus never said, follow your heart. He said, follow me. So if your Christian life is all about you praying to get what you want, so your dreams can be fulfilled and come true, that's an idolatrous faith. It's not true faith. And I confess, when I first came back to Christ, I had that bent. And I had that bent not because I'm an evil person in my heart. It's because I grew up in America. And I can have the American Christian dream. And the Lord has crucified that in me. (laughs) He's brought me to Gethsemane and had me put that to death. And so, church, people of God, if you really love Jesus, if you really want to follow him, you need to be very careful about what you want in life. 
and what you want in certain situations. If you want to fulfill his calling in your life, I promise you this. It will be more difficult than you ever dreamed. And there will be moments where it'll be the most difficult thing he's ever led you to do. And you'll come to a crossroads called Gethsemane. And he'll see if you're willing to embrace the cross. And isn't it interesting in Luke 9, 23, a friend of mine texted me this morning. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Because as many preachers have said, the problem with the living sacrifice is they keep wanting to crawl off the altar. (laughs) (laughs) Romans chapter 12, we're a living sacrifice. So we don't have to die. Jesus died for us. But we're to sacrifice ourselves and lay down our lives for him. And we're to do that every single day. And you can have a great church experience and be super convicted today and do it. But are you going to do it tomorrow? And are you going to do it next week? That's why it's a daily surrender. It's a daily walk. And it's daily yielding to him. Because that's what love is. I'm living for you, not for me. So the last pitfall of dangerous discernment, that's really the root right there. Idolizing your own desire and your own what you want. But there's a final pitfall, and it's really the nail in the coffin, and it's really, really terrible, and I just hate how this story ends, and it grieves my heart. But the final pitfall is listening to the accuser and calling the accuser's voice the voice of God. And that has a whole host of really, really bad consequences. But it's the beginning of chapter 43, just a few verses. It says, when Jeremiah finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah, son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, so these are the leaders, the guys who came and asked for discernment from Jeremiah, and all the arrogant men, that's a key part, all the prideful people, said to Jeremiah, you are lying. The Lord your God has not sent you to say, you must not go to Egypt to settle there, but Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians, so they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. So, because they just wanted to do what they wanted to do, they still called themselves believers and people of God. Then they accused the true prophet of lying to them. Who's Baruch, son of Neriah? That's Jeremiah's associate pastor. He incited, you're listening too much to your associate pastor. He's incited you against us. You guys are in cahoots. Why would they do that? Because they're listening to the accuser. You know, Jesus said, yet one of you is a devil. And I thought, man, he's harsh. Why would he call one of his own disciples a devil? Did you know the word devil doesn't mean demon? He didn't say one of you is an unclean spirit. Do you know what the word devil means? It means slanderer, one who accuses. And Judas was accusing Jesus behind his back constantly. And he eventually went to the chief priest to accuse him and to slander him. Because he never really believed Jesus was the Messiah. Probably was jealous of him. Don't know all the reasons. But he was an accuser and a slanderer. So true prophets, men and women of God in our culture, are being slandered. And called liars. And trying to be defamed in character assassination by prideful people who just want to do what they want to do. And the Lord wants me to warn you, don't become that. 
There's a song by a guy named Sam McCabe called I Want to Serve God. And it's a really cool song. You should go listen to it. But he says, I don't want to follow a God that's always on my side, trying to enshrine my dispositions and call it the divine. Because at the end of the day, who's really leading who? Do I want you to look like me or do I want to look like you? Do we want to twist the Bible to make God what we want just so we can do what we want? Or if we really believe it's the word of God, do we humble ourselves and read it with fear and trembling? And even if what we read is extremely difficult, we're going to do that because it's what the God of the universe says. And I'm just a person. Beware of any preacher or prophet that's a little too original. Because we're to be preaching the apostles' doctrine, the original apostles. That's the scriptures. That's the Bible. That's it. And we're to live it out. Beware of any preacher or prophet that tells you to do things that the word of God says not to do. Beware of any preacher or prophet that tells you not to do things that God's word tells you to do. Because of their pride, they chose to believe the lie of the enemy, and they ended up calling God's word a lie. I invite you to weigh everything I've said today against scripture. And if I invite you to always do that. And one of the telltale signs of a cult, a few, they don't invite that kind of scrutiny. <laughs> and number two, they, it's all about control and they want to keep you there. <laughs> okay. so, um, I invite you to scrutinize me. What I say, what I teach, what our church teaches. But here's the judgment. And he, only if it's against the word of God. And if you believe that something our church is teaching is not of God, you're free to go. And I'm not going to say you're going to go to hell because you left our church. I praise God. I would hate it if Free People Church was the only church that could see people be saved on the earth. You know why? There's, there, that's too much work. <laughs> It's a kingdom. There's lots of other good churches out there. And if you think something we're doing is not of God, I would be really careful. I wouldn't just leave. If the Lord's called you here, I would check the scriptures. I would weigh it. And the Bible says that that's the perspective. When men and women of God speak, those who, should, those who are listening should listen carefully and judge what is said. But you don't judge it by your own opinions or your own heart. <laughs> or your feelings, or especially what the culture thinks, or you'll give in to dangerous discernment. And there have been people who've done that and who've left this church and called us liars and heretics and cult, and I'm a cult leader and all that. Why? Because they're using their own judgments, they're using their own feelings, they're using the lens of the culture to judge what happens here. And I praise God that it's like I praise God and I tremble before him that my judge is no man, it's him. I've had people point things out and go, I don't think what you said Sunday was exactly accurate. 
And I've had times where I went, I think you're right. I need to repent of that. And I do. And I praise God for that. You know what I praise God for? Grace. That I don't have to be perfect either. And we even see that in scripture. Paul rebukes Peter. Post-Jesus. Post-Pentecost. When they're both apostles. So that's fine. And I want to humble myself to receive correction. Because I want to... I don't think I had it all figured out when I was 29 and started this church. And I'll never mess up or have it all right the rest of my life. So I'm on a journey too. And our church is on a journey. And you're all on a journey. But that means we're all going to need correction from time to time. And there will be times some of you might come and gently correct me. And I pray to the Lord I'll humble myself and receive that. And I always try to. And there will be times that the Lord leads me or one of our leaders to come and gently correct you. And I pray it will be in gentleness, with love and respect. But man, I pray that you use good discernment. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for our time together today. And Lord, we just humble ourselves to you before you today. The Holy Spirit grieves over these things big time. And I'm not going to enter into intercession right now or prayer because it'll go too deep and I'll get all emotional. And then we'll be here for a long time, you guys listening to me weep before the Lord. But just know his heart's broken over these things. He grieves deeply when his people give in to dangerous discernment and when they divorce themselves from each other and their callings and their families and his will, and his word. (laughs) All the while thinking it's the Lord, so they feel justified in it, and it, it breaks his heart. And so, Lord, I just pray you would humble all of us, and I pray our church would be a very humble church that can receive correction. I want to be a humble leader that can receive correction. And I invite your correction, God. God, I pray you would, I pray that over our whole church, that we'd all be humble people that can receive correction, your correction, Because your word says the wise, correct the wise and they'll add to their learning. Rebuke the wise and they'll be wiser still. Um, God, some of the people I'm most thankful for in my life are those who've corrected me at times. And I just praise you for that. I praise you for their presence in my life. Trusted voices. But Lord, I do ask for protection from the accuser and from critics who the accuser will send to masquerade as corrective voices that are really just accusing voices. And I pray that you would give us the discernment to know the difference. And God, we just humble ourselves. We want what you want. God, I pray in Gethsemane we'll be faithful. And we will say, yet not what I will, but what you will. So God, just clarify your voice and clarify your will. Give us discernment. And we humble ourselves and we become indifferent to our desires. And we say, God, whatever you want, we'll do it. We'll do it. (laughs) We can never go wrong praying that prayer. And God, I pray you'd silence the voice of the enemy and the accuser in our own hearts even. I pray you would silence the voices of other people in our minds or caring too much what they think. There are people who will rub it in our faces if we admit we were wrong on something and That causes us to not want to do it because we know that they're wrong for doing that. (laughs) There are times that 
we're tempted to do what others want rather than what you want. So just protect us from that, Lord, the fear of man. And uh, it's a snare and it's a trap, your word says. So give it, God, I pray an increase of the fear of the Lord in our church family and in your body. I, Lord, I just ask for a mighty increase of the fear of the Lord in America as a nation. And the fear of the Lord should increase our <sighs> desire for morality and obedience and purity and holiness. But it should also increase proportionally <laughs> our compassion and our grace and our kindness, especially when we have to deliver hard news or a rebuke or a correction. We should not do that gleefully or happily or angrily because the fear of the Lord in us causes us to do it with gentleness and respect and love and compassion. And so, Lord, we need an increase of the fear of the Lord. We want to have good discernment. And so, as Job prayed, though he would slay me, though you would slay us, God, yet we'll hope in you. Because <laughs> we know you only want to kill what's not good in us. And um, so we just invite you to do soul surgery today. Purify our hearts. And uh, we know that for any self-death <laughs> that we have, there's a resurrection in store. And you call us to die daily, but it's so that we can live the resurrection life of Jesus daily. And um, so I just thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, you would finish this. Finish this death of self. Finish this self-denial Finish this Gethsemane season. Thank you, Lord, where we fully surrender. And I just pray that for everyone in the room, but man, I especially pray it for the young people in the room because so many Christians die a slow, painful death to themselves. <laughs> and we call it, oh, it's a pro sanctification's a process. Man, it's, it doesn't have to be that long and painful if we would just die sooner. So I just pray that over the young people. Give them, show them. I pray for a vision and a sobriety over them to see Egypt for what it is. It's not the promised land. It is not this fantasy land where everything's going to go awesome. The grass is not greener in Egypt. Whew. The grass is not greener in your dream of your life. Whew. The grass is green where the Lord waters it. The fullness of joy is in his presence. Perfect peace is in his presence in his will. And, um, you know, Stephen was happy to die a martyr. I mean, th he was full of joy, praying, Father, forgive him, while they were stoning him to death. <clears throat> and I just wonder if Stephen had went off and lived his own Israelite dream, trying to follow God while fulfilling his own selfish desires, if he had just been as miserable as a lot of us are, trying to do the same thing in America. And yet, as he fully lives his calling and preaches the gospel boldly and he gets stoned to death, he's happy and he sees Jesus giving him standing ovation and he's so full of joy and peace and he's excited to, to meet Jesus. And he, so he holds nothing against his abusers and his, his killers, his assassins, because they're just ushering him into the arms of Jesus, but it's a sin for them. So he just prays, Father, forgive him. Correct our perspective, God. So thank you, Lord, for this correcting. Thank you for this word. It's a sobering word, but we need sobered. We need sobered, and we just thank you for that. We want to live sober lives, God. Serious, sober before you. We thank you, Lord. 
I pray you would help us watch our lives and our doctrines closely. And I pray that your church would realize that's not just a word for preachers. Because people are going to ask you what you think and your children are going to ask you what you think and whatever you tell them becomes their doctrine. And it's your doctrine. And I just pray, Lord, that we would speak your word and not what the culture thinks or believes. So purify our hearts, God. Thank you for humility. We humble ourselves today. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.